This week's theme uh, from our series that we've been in for the last few weeks, uh, our series is called The God Who Is There, and this week our theme is The God Who Triumphs, The God Who Triumphs. And this actually is kind of the the culmination of the series as uh, we've been kind of marching through the Bible, starting with the God who created everything and moving through the different stages of the the grand story of the Bible and learning about... uh, the character of God along the way, and in this one, we will be at the very end of the Bible, uh, later in the sermon, in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, and we'll be seeing um, the ultimate triumph of God. Uh, but actually, though, we have one more sermon, because we did the Christmas one out of order so that we could do it at Christmas time. So next week, we'll still be in this series, but, uh, but this is kind of the, the climax of the, of the series here in The God Who Triumphs. Uh, the, the final victory of our God. And terms like that, uh, triumph or victory, those terms uh, presuppose that there is some kind of conflict going on in which God is winning. So when we talk about uh, the God who triumphs, what is it that he is triumphing over? And that question gets to the heart of the whole Bible, really, because uh, what uh, the, the, the big grand story of how in the beginning God created a perfect world, and then that world uh, that he created to be good rebelled against him. And the people uh, in the world rebelled against him and took the whole world with them into a cursed state. And God's plan throughout the Bible has been a plan of redemption, a plan to bring about the end to that rebellion and to save the world from the consequences of that rebellion. And that is the triumph that we're talking about today in the God who triumphs. It's his triumph over the the curse and the fall from the beginning of the story. So today we're going to focus on three problems that God has victory over, three specific things that he is victorious over. The first one is that the perfect world has been marred by sin and is under a curse. In Genesis 3, God tells Adam and Eve about the curse on the earth. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the food. And then later, the Bible reflects on the effects that this curse has had on the world. In the book of uh, Romans, it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. You see, our world has problems. There's still a lot of uh, beauty in the world and a lot of good things in the world, But there are also earthquakes and droughts and storms and diseases that kill and destroy. And all of this is in conflict with God and His will for His creation. And we'll see today how He wins the victory in that conflict. The second problem that that God triumphs over that we're going to focus on today is the problem of human sinfulness and guilt. Because people are guilty and liable to hell because of their sin. But in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, 
The Bible tells us this. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. See, we are, we're going to come back to this passage in, in just a moment, and I'm, we're going to march through some of that and explain some of the more uh, details here. And we are going to be spending quite a bit of time here in Colossians 2 and 3, so if you're, uh, you want to like to have your Bible open and not just read it off the screen, that's where you should open here. Um, but, but first I want to talk a little bit about the third triumph, and then we'll come back to, to this one. The third victory of God is this. Humans are not the only ones who are in rebellion against God. There's another group of created beings who also rebelled against God and who stand in opposition to his plans and his will. And that, of course, is uh, Lucifer and the other fallen angels who rebelled long ago and who were involved in the fall of mankind and in making our sinful state even worse. And I'm not quite sure if they think somehow that they're going to win in the end or if they really know that, uh, that they're, that they're uh, doomed to, to, to be defeated. But regardless of that, what we do know is that they have not given up their opposition to God, and they are still in conflict with God, but their opposition will finally be defeated. Here in Colossians, what it says, it says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, and that's a reference to these uh, spiritual beings, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, Jesus won the victory over these evil spiritual forces on the cross because it was on the cross that his plan was completed despite all of their efforts to oppose him. The victory over sin was won and the harm that those evil spirits had done was undone. And while they are still actively opposing him to this day, their doom is certain. The Bible tells us about their final acts of rebellion in the book of Revelation, and there it tells us what their ultimate end will be. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the cross was the victory of God's will over the will of the rebel angels, and the final consummation of that victory will come at the end of the age when their influence is completely removed from the world and they are sent into eternal punishment. So now let's come back to the, the great triumph over sin that we talked about in that earlier verse from Colossians. I want to spend a little more time on that one. It said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Notice, first of all, that this is put in the second person. It says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. We're not just talking about some theoretical out there that there are people who God has saved who were in a, in a bad place and God is... This is applies to you. The Bible is getting personal. 
It applies to you just like it did to this church in ancient Turkey that, uh, that, that Paul was writing to many centuries ago. You were dead in your sins. And if you are a Christian, then God has made you alive. When we were so sinful that we were incapable of real spiritual life, we were unable to respond to God and to take hold of life. And that's what it means when the Bible says we were dead in our sins. We were spiritually dead. We weren't just spiritually weak and, and, and impotent or spiritually not quite up to standards. We were spiritually dead. And that's a problem. And, but God overcame that problem by making us alive. And then it says, uh, he forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. So first we're all dead and he made us alive. Now we were sinful, legally indebted, and condemned. But God has forgiven our sins and canceled the debt. And without that debt, we are no longer condemned. It says that God has taken all of that away and nailed it to the cross. Again, the moment of great victory is the cross, where, uh, where, where sin was defeated and the victory was won. But in somewhat of the same way as it is with Satan and the demons who are still active for a time, sin is also still in the world and still causing problems. And the physical world, too, is still suffering under the curse of sin, right? So even though we say that Jesus has won the victory over all these three things, all three of them are still here. Um, so well, he has won the victory, but the ultimate victory is still to be finalized at the end of the age. And in the meantime, we're in this in-between era in which God has struck the decisive blow and the game is essentially over and the outcome is assured, but there is still some time on the clock and there is still a period before the victory is finalized. But we know that the victory will be finalized, and so we live aware of that victory and of the fact that it will be completed while we are still involved in that final stage of the conflict. We still battle against sin in our lives. We're still opposed by evil spirits who wish to prevent us from conforming to God's will, and we still suffer from the marred physical world in which cancer and earthquakes and things of that sort are still common. The next chapter of Colossians gives us instructions on how we are to live in the awareness that we are in this in-between time of, uh, between Jesus' victory on the cross and his final victorious return. So here's what it says in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things above... Not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says, you died and your life is in Christ. Which is kind of strange because we just said that you were dead and God made you alive. Now it's saying that you died um, so, so did Paul forget what he wrote uh, on the other side of the page? No, here's the idea. 
is we were alive to sin and dead to God. And now, through, uh, through Jesus' sacrifice for us, we have now died to sin and we are alive to God. And if you want to know more about that, read Romans chapter 6. There's a big discussion of this whole, uh, you have died and now you have risen and dead to uh, sin and alive to God. Romans chapter 6, read that first uh, section, especially of Romans 6, and it'll tell you all about it. But here's the idea that it says, when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. So when Christ appears, now didn't he appear at Christmas? Right? It's Christmas time. We think about Christ's coming, right? And so he was born uh, to Mary, laid in a manger, all that stuff. That was when Christ appeared, right? Well, yes, that was his initial company, coming. But after he lived his, uh, his life of ministry on earth and he died on the cross and rose from the grave, Jesus went back to the Father. And he told us that he is coming back. He is coming back and he will appear again. And his second coming will be very different from his first. Christmas is all about the humble circumstances of his birth as he's uh, born to a poor family and laid in a manger and all that. The second coming will be in glory. His first coming was inconspicuous. His second coming will be prominent. And the victory that he won in his first coming was on a cross. It didn't look like victory. It looked like he was losing. But in his second coming, he will conquer all opposition. And after his coming, there will be a final day of judgment, and all evil will be judged. And those who have put their faith in Jesus will be taken into eternal reward. And all of creation will be remade. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And those who have put their faith in Jesus will have their reward. And we will enjoy God there forever. When Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And so, what are we to do? What are we to do then? It says, set your minds on things above <clears throat> not on earthly things. Well, what does that mean? It means that the focus of our thinking, the focus of our desires, the focus of our hearts should be on the spiritual world and the world to come. Not that we ignore the world that we live in now, of course, but where is our priority? Here's how Jesus put the same idea in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." So set your minds on things above or store up treasures in heaven. Here's what the Bible is telling us. If what you value most has to do with treasures down here, things that may in themselves be good things, things that we should appreciate and we should thank God for, if that is the entire scope of your treasure, 
then that is where your heart will go. That is where your creative imagination will go. That is where your energy will go. That is what you think about. It's what you hope for. It's what you dream about. And of course, if you're a Christian, you also know, yes, and someday also I'll be uh, in heaven. But, but if, your, if your belief in heaven is, is not a, a, a real desire for heaven, it will not much change you the way you live your life unless heaven is something that you yearn for and something that you treasure. If all of your treasures are in this life, then belief in a coming heaven will not shape you in a powerful way. If, on the other hand, what you treasure most has to do with the new heaven and the new earth, then that is where your imagination will go. That is where your energy will go, and that is where your heart will go. So the Bible is not saying that you should not have a 401k, or that you shouldn't care about the environment, or that uh, we shouldn't be concerned with the things of this life. What it is saying is that there is a real danger that we will be overly focused on this life so that what seems best to us for the now will distract us from what is actually most important. And we will fail to live in anticipation of the ultimate triumph of God. So why is it better for us to have our priority on the eternal future rather than on our current lives? Well, first, uh, just think about the relative length of this life as compared to the next life. So I made a little chart here that uh, shows, uh, it's an attempt to show the difference, although, um, you know, can you see the little blue line at the beginning there? That's that's our current life. That's your 80 to 100 years or so that you get in this life, which I realize that I'm about halfway through that, but, you know, I still got half to go. Um, anyway, the, and the green line represents the first few thousand years of your life in the eternal kingdom. And, of course, you can't actually make a chart, uh, a chart that shows the length of that because it's eternal. It, it just goes on and on, which is why I put a little arrow on the end there. Very clever of me to uh, show that it just keeps going. But anyway, the, the chart is, is intended to just kind of give you that mental image of the difference between what we're striving for in this life and what we will experience in the next. Are you really going to focus your efforts on storing up treasure for this life? That tiny little blue dot at the beginning of the line that you can barely even see. Wouldn't it be wiser to store up treasure in heaven. Another thing to notice about Jesus' teaching here is that it is possible to store up treasure in heaven. What kind of treasure? I don't know exactly what it's going to be like. Um, I, I am kind of curious about that, but Jesus doesn't really tell us what the treasure is going to be. I don't think it's going to be coins or something like that, but the point is that the, the way we spend our resources in this life will result in treasure being stored up either here or there. And we are not in a position where heaven is coming after this life, but it's all set up and there's nothing else to do. It's just that's the way it's going to be and nothing we do now has, it can change that. 
No, it, it, uh, we are in a, a, a situation where God has promised eternal rewards for our actions in this life. When we live for God now, doing good for the poor and needy, serving the cause of God's justice, preaching the gospel, giving money to the work of the kingdom, and all the other good things that we can do, these actions result in storing up rewards that we can enjoy for eternity. So, setting our hearts on things above and focusing our lives on those things will have a real effect on our experience of the life to come. And of course, it isn't just those, that those rewards will last longer. That's a pretty big deal, but it's not just the, the length. They are also going to be better and more enjoyable and more intense and happier and more pure than any treasure we could store up on earth. So let's talk a little bit about what the Bible teaches about eternity and the life that we will experience uh, and that we have to look forward to. Um, first, Jesus taught us that at the judgment, those who put their faith in him would be ushered into his eternal kingdom. Here's how Jesus described it. Uh, he said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's going to be a good thing to hear. That's going to be a good thing to hear. We want to make sure that we hear that. And it is in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, that's where we're going to be spending some time now, uh, where we have the most extensive teachings about the end of this age, the return of Jesus, and then the, uh, the, the nature of the age to come. Now, uh, the book of Revelation is a, a, a book of a series of visions that the Apostle John had in which he saw all kinds of things that God was revealing to him. That's why it's called Revelations. And, um, and in, those, uh, in those visions, he saw a lot of strange imagery and symbolic things that it's hard to really nail down the details of exactly what they all mean, but the, the main ideas are clear. The big ideas of the, God's victory and of um, eternal life. And um, so despite the, the, the difficulties of, of understanding some of those things, we can see um, the clear meaning of the overall thing. And so we're going to take a look at a couple of visions that are in the last couple chapters of Revelation after all the... The transition period is, is coming to an end, and he's describing what it will be like uh, after that. And he says in the beginning of Revelation chapter 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So there's a couple of key ideas to point out here. First, it's clear that the world has been recreated. There is a new heaven and a new earth because the old earth uh, has passed away. So everything is made new. Uh, a completely clean slate in every sense. Even the physical world we live in will be flawless. Flawless. And then we see two images used to describe the people of God who will dwell in the new creation. 
They're described first as a city and then as a bride. So picture that in your mind, a city that has been dressed as a bride. What are you picturing? Are you picturing buildings with big dresses on them? Or uh, are you picturing... Um, it's it's kind of hard to, to, to see exactly a whole city maybe full of people wearing wedding veils. I don't know. But... Um, but probably it's best to use those as separate metaphors and see that first he's describing it as a city, then he's describing it as a bride. We learn something from each metaphor. Probably not, best not to try to combine the two of them. So, um, so the image of a city. Um, well, first of all, it's not just any city. It's the new Jerusalem. So what is theologically significant about Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was the city that God chose to put the temple where he would interact with his people and where they could come and worship him and talk to him and he would, uh, um, where he would be and interact with people and, and have a relationship with them. And they could be near to him. But they did that not as individuals, but as a community. It's a city of Jerusalem, a community of people, a large group who are all together uh, having a relationship with Jesus. Um, so the vision of the city is a symbol of our ability to live with God and to be near Him and to worship Him in community. And then the bride image, that's one that comes up several times throughout the Bible that uh, we are described as uh, God as the groom and his people as a bride. And, um, and this symbol emphasizes the relationship that we are going to have with God in eternity. Um, the closest human relationship that we can have, the marriage relationship, um, is just a small uh, idea of what our relationship with God is going to be like, that, that love for one another and that care for one another. Um, the best human marriage is just a small copy of the love that we will share with Jesus forever. And then John's vision goes on. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, we have been separated from God. Even when we had the temple in Jerusalem that I just uh, was, was mentioning there, there was a heavy curtain that separated the presence of God from the people. So, but not so in the New Jerusalem. In fact, a few verses later, uh, it tells us that there is not actually going to be any temple at all. God is just going to be there with us, uh, inter interacting with us directly. And that is actually going to be the best part of what we have to look forward to in eternity. We look forward to other things too. No more pain, no more death, never-ending joy. All those sound great. But the best thing, the greatest thing, will be our experience of a direct relationship with God himself. We will be his people and God himself will be our God. In one of the books I was uh, studying for this sermon, the author talked about a folk song 
uh, that described the, where the singer talked about his version of heaven. And his version of heaven was himself in a beautiful landscape with his lover. But that does sound very romantic. I'm sure she was impressed that he thought of her as part of his heaven. But, but a vision of heaven that is not focused on God is a pretty poor vision of heaven. It will be great for us to be with other saints in eternity. I'm sure we'll be very happy when we see other people and we get to talk to Moses and, and whatnot. Um, but the best thing about heaven is going to be that God will be there and we will be with him. And it's, it's pretty difficult for us to grasp what that will be like, which I think is why it's, it's, it, it kind of doesn't drive us that much because we can't, we can't understand that because God is infinite in every way. How will we relate to him? What will he look like? I mean, we know that Adam and Eve walked and talked with him in the garden, right? Will it be something like that? I'm not sure. I, I would expect something similar, I suppose. But what I do know is that it's going to be great. And whatever feasting you're looking forward to or whatever beauty of the new creation you look forward to exploring, none of it will compare to your experience of being the people of God and living in relationship with him. So John uh, then describes a little bit of what it will be like in the next verses here. He says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He says, He will wipe away every tear. That's quite a, a, a picture of him coming and, and touching your face and wiping away the tears. But he's not just wiping away tears in some kind of attempt to be to comfort where he's saying, oh, you know, it'll be okay, don't worry. Uh, but he doesn't really have any ability to make sure it's going to be okay. In this case, God is going to make everything Okay. He will wipe away your tears and there will be no more cause of tears because God will prevent anything from hurting you again. God will keep us forever safe from all harm and there will be no more suffering and no more tears and no more death. I think those of us who have uh, been through the death of someone that we really loved uh, will appreciate this the most. That won't happen anymore. Death is not part of what God intended for us. Sometimes people say things like, oh, death is just a part of life. It's the cycle, you know, there's birth and there's life and there's death. And that's just the natural way of things. But that's not true. <laughs> death is actually a curse that is on us because of sin. We should not die, and we will not die in eternity. Death will be removed. We were made to live forever. Sin stole that from us, and God will give it back. We will all live forever with him and never die, a life without mourning or crying or pain. Does that sound good? I think it sounds pretty good. Is that something to look forward to? It is going to be perfect. 
One more symbolic vision here from the book of Revelation in the next chapter that we're going to look at to, to, to finish up today. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river there stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now, there's a lot of symbolism here, and a lot of it is, is uh, symbolism that is from other parts of the Bible that is being brought back here. Um, but uh, the key word in this vision is clearly life. We have the water of life flowing in the river of life, watering the tree of life, and the tree is producing continual fruit that will give us life. And all of it is coming from the throne of God. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And these are symbolic visions of that life to the full. The best life that we have now is life light. This isn't real life. This is just a, a small bit of life. When we are drinking the water of life from the river of life, eating the fruit from the tree of life, then we will have abundant life. Exactly how are these symbols going to be fulfilled? Is there going to be a real river, fruit, trees? I don't know. But what I do know is that the meaning is clear, even if the exact interpretation is not. We will be experiencing life in eternity that is a real life, a life to the full. John's description of the vision continues. He says, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. So the tree is going to provide healing to everyone, to the nations, to all the people will be healed by the tree. What will we be healed from? Well, from all of the scars and wounds that might have uh, come on us in this life of sin. All will be healed. And again, the emphasis here is on the direct access that we will have to God. You know, the throne will be in the city and we will be right with Him. It says His servants will serve Him. What kind of service are we going to do? I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be, but I know that it's going to be something that brings Him joy and brings us joy. And it will be a joy for us to serve God. And then the conclusion of the vision says, They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, but the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We will see God face to face. There'll be no more evil hiding out in the darkness. And this will go on forever and ever. So, set your hearts on things above, not on things of earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So as we conclude here, I just want 
to encourage you to think about your life a little bit. Where is your heart? Where are you storing up treasure? Uh, do you feel that your life is in the correct balance? Are you focused on the, on the right things or are you focusing too much on the here and now? <clears throat>